Hello and welcome to this Farm Advisory Service podcast. My name is Daniel Stout, I'm from SEC Consulting. In this podcast we'll be discussing mistakes in sheep, firstly with Professor Laura Green, OBE of Birmingham University, and then later with my colleague Poppy Freyer. Mistakes is a significant welfare issue for infected ewes, but also the lambs. It also has a major impact on performance, being estimated to cost the industry £120 million every year in direct costs, such as poor lamb growth rates, the cost of treatment, and the higher replacement rate in the flock. This ranking it as one of the most important diseases in sheep. Hello, Laura. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Dan. Very nice to be here. Okay. What exactly is mastitis, Laura? And what, what do we mean when we say there's acute and chronic mastitis? So mastitis is an inflammation of the, the mammary gland or the udder, um, typically just on one side or the other of the, the two glands that a sheep has. So maybe I should just say that, you know, you have the two glands, uh, each of those produces the milk. And that is then what's released down through the teats uh, to the lambs. Typically, it's caused by bacteria. And I think what we're going to talk about today is about bacterial mastitis. But I just want to mention that a couple of viruses can cause mastitis as well. Those are Mydivisna um, and Yoxixi. And those are um, some of these iceberg viral diseases that that, uh, are discussed at the moment. Because they're part of the signs I think just be aware that, that that can be there. And if you're getting a lot of sheep with a hard udder, to be thinking that something else could be going on. But but for the purposes of today, I think we're talking about bacterial mastitis. So, back to, I mean, if you think about it, the udder works really hard. Definitely. Lambs feed um, 12 plus times a day. Every time they feed, um, the, the teat end is open. The, the mouths are going around um, the, the teat end. Milk is going mainly down into the lamb, but obviously there's some flow back up into the udder. Mm-hmm. And of course, the udder's sitting around in a, in a non-sterile environment. So what we see is the bacteria enter the gland. There's Typically, there's milk in there. It's a fantastic source of nutrition for the bacteria, so they multiply up. Um, and that causes uh, a response from the sheep, which is the inflammation. And so we get a, a mastitis. The, the difference between acute mastitis and chronic mastitis is, is in fact time. So acute mm-hmm. means sudden in time and chronic means long term over time. We tend to use it slightly differently. We probably shouldn't, but we often say a sheep's got acute mastitis when they're very ill with it. So you know, a, a, a ewe that starts to limp or even we see that the, the udder turns black or red or she has a temperature. So it's an acute onset, but in fact, you could have an acute mastitis that's very mild so that just the, the udder's affected or you may not even see it, it, it happening. And a chronic mastitis is a mastitis that's there for a period of time. And typically we pick those up by feeling and finding lumps in the udder where the udder mass just has a different consistency from, from how um, the rest of it feels, typically a little bit. Um, it's very hard to explain really, but I guess if you if you had a bag of jelly and you put a plum in there, you might imagine feeling that plum amongst the jelly. That would be the sort of abscessy type feeling that we're talking about. Yeah, that kind of lumps in the udder. You've been involved in a lot of interesting research on those mistakes pathogens. What did you find? Is there a lot of different bacteria involved? or So there are an awful lot of bacteria involved. Um, I think that goes back to the point I was saying about the, the teat being open. Um, and so any bacteria from around the sheep's skin, from the pasture, from the lamb's mouth can can go into the udder. And um, once in there, 
uh, it's such a nice environment to grow that many of them will grow. So um, at the moment, we've found somewhere between around 50 and 80 species of bacteria in the udder of sheep. Uh, if we look at dairy cows, there are even more. So I suspect the more we look in sheep, the more we will find. Having said that, um, there are a couple of organisms that we know are uh, a, a real issue for sheep. And um, one of those is a Staphylococcus and another is a Pasturella, um, where we see that those organisms can spread between the sheep and so are a particular concern. But, but most mastitis we see in sheep can be caused by quite a lot of different organisms. Are these commonly found in, on all farm and all environments? Or are they, would certain farms have higher prevalence of certain bacteria within the infected ewes? So I think that, 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 that's a good question. Following on from my earlier response is that uh, most of these organisms are on most farms. Yeah. Certainly the staphs, the staphylococci, because they're a part of the normal skin of sheep, they, they will always be there. Pasturella seems to be um, one where some flocks have more of a problem than others. And um, you'll see outbreaks of pasturella mastitis spreading between sheep. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we see that with the staphylococci. So I know farmers will report uh, an outbreak of mastitis where the bag becomes black and, and necrotic. And that's because there's a toxin in that staph. And it's actually killing off the the, the blood supply and so the the udder is is rotting on that side sorry it sounds pretty gross mm -hmm. no, um, but it's no. real um and we can definitely see in those situations that we've got something spreading from sheep to sheep is that not mean in an indoor environment or can that happen on pastures no well? i think that happens at pasture as well yeah. okay. so i'm, I'm going to get quite anecdotal here which i think tells us that we we need to do more research into this area yeah but from farmers experiences both that they have seen this spread and because it, the udder the changes in a particular way, you, you can almost trace the spread just by how the udder changes in these sheep. But what those farmers have said is if they separate the ewes with mastitis and really importantly, their lambs, yep. then they can break that transmission. And that can happen in a house, but it can happen at pasture too. But what, what they've said is um, some of them I know said they've, they've, deliberately left the lambs in the flock thinking well they're not going to get any milk from their mother so they may as well snatch some milk from other ewes but those lambs look like they're carrying that organism because That's the right. spread carries on so both the ewes and the lambs need to be separated okay yeah so it's maybe the lambs that are spreading it from sheep to sheep as well yeah, yeah. so they're, they've got it in their mouths um yeah and and they're spreading it from sheep to sheep yeah so there's definitely value in there i suppose then and you've got use of mastitis if you can separate them out with their lambs um, yeah. it's a really good point that we probably don't do very often at all no um no that's really interesting is there certain bacterial sort of combinations that can have more impact can they work in synergy or will it in the event of full mastitis will it always be one that's very dominant in causing um, it? I, I don't think i know the answer to that question i i, I mean I think by the time we get to the chronic mastitis, um, we have done some work where we've cultured milk um, and cultured the abscesses. Um, and we, we find what's in the abscesses is in the milk and it tends to be many different species of bacteria. So mm -hmm. I think that they're sort of working together to create the abscesses and keep the, the damage going. And to be honest, by that time, I don't think we can cure those sheep. No. I, I don't know about 
organisms actually working together to cause mastitis. Yeah, no, that's an interesting one. So in terms of that, you've got a sheep with mastitis, what, what is the best way to go at it in terms of treatment? We don't know very much. Um, the acute mastitis, um, some work was done a few years ago, and to be honest, the, the message is the sooner you treat them, the better. Yeah. Um, and that they're more likely to recover if they've had treatment early than if it if you wait and treat them a bit later. There didn't seem to be a particular pattern about one antibiotic being better than another. Um, so I think you know a, a broad spectrum antibiotic recommended by your vet is the best thing to do. We've talked about separation to protect others. Uh, it probably is a good idea if you can to to milk out the the gland. Sometimes ewes will let their lambs continue to feed, and and that might be the way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're going to milk them out collect the milk don't just milk them out and let that milk go on to bedding because it will be very infectious um you know and all you need is to take it with your welly boot to to the next place you go to um if you have separated them out or you're leaving it on pasture for others to get infected yeah yeah what sort of control factors do we have then in preventing mastitis and how, how can we influence it yeah so i think this is probably particularly important for the chronic mastitis so one of the things that um, has been recommended is that when you go through a flock, you, um, particularly at weaning and before tupping, if you find ewes with lumps, that, that you take those ewes out of the flock and cull them. Yeah. If you don't have very much mastitis, I think that's a very good idea. But if you've got quite a lot, that's a very difficult thing to do in the first instance. Um, but what you could do is you could separate out and try and run two flocks. Um, and slowly wind down your your group with the lumps. Um, We did a piece of work over a year with a flock that started with quite a high level of of, um, ewes with lumps, around 20% of them had lumps. We pulled those ewes out, and then we continued to pull ewes out with lumps as we checked them each month over the year. By the end of the year, we ended up with half the sheep in one group and half in another. So we had half the sheep had these lumps, I mean, that is really difficult to manage. So what, what we understand from that is that um, there's a lot of sheep where you find the lumps, but the lumps come and go. Um, and so they're, they're rumbling on. Now, there is a cost to that. Those sheep that had lumps, the, the lambs grew considerably more slowly and they were more likely to get a severe mastitis at some point, probably from one of these abscesses rupturing and causing disease for the whole sheep. So so they're pretty bad news, these lumps, Um, and I don't think we know fully how to manage them. But there are flocks where they maybe have 1% or 2% of sheep, which they find with lumps, and I would say absolutely cull them. If you put more than that, try separating out and see if you can create a healthier flock and gradually wind down the the ewes in in the the group with lumps. But but you would need to keep them separate all the time, and Mm -hmm. I realise that's quite a big management ask. So what we want to then do is minimise the impact of these lumps. Uh, so what we want to try and avoid is a ewe going from having a lump, which maybe reduces its milk supply, to getting acute disease, which may mean that it dies or milk uh, really dries up and you then have lambs without enough milk. The biggest thing we can do to prevent that is, is feeding them well. So the, the work that we've done shows that if we really focus on nutrition... Uh, and, and if you think about it, it makes sense because what we're doing is making sure that the ewes are going to be able to produce a good supply of milk 
So the lambs are not going to be then butting up against the udder to get greater milk let down, less likely hopefully to rupture one of those abscesses uh, and, and lead to a case of mastitis. And this good nutrition focuses both on when they're pregnant and when they're lactating. So when they're pregnant, we've already discussed that we want to aim to keep users at a fairly constant body condition. So um, ideally that they're in body condition around three to three and a half. Um, and through gestation or pregnancy, um, that's partly protein, but also really thinking about energy. So that protein energy ratio being right. Um, what we see from lambing is typically there's enough protein in the diet and it's getting enough energy in the diet that they continue to produce milk. If you don't have enough energy and you have quite a lot of protein, they use their body condition to feed the lamb. So they become very scrawny and thin. Um, and it's sort of it's a three times maintenance diet. So really sitting down and properly calculating the nutrition, making sure that you've analysed your silage, um, other things that you're feeding, if you're feeding straights, so you know the protein and energy and they're getting the right amount of each and enough of each. Um, and that that reduces the risk of mastitis by about half. Is that right? Yeah. It's a, yeah so that's a bigger. really, that's a really, I mean, half is a lot. Yes. So, um, that is really worth doing. Yeah, no, absolutely. So this, these lambs, so if, if your nutrition is all right for you, the ewe's not milking well enough. You've got lambs that are hungry, so that they're pushing on the udder. And do they cause damage as such, or is it more that they're almost bursting these lesions? We don't know, um, I, is, is the honest truth. But it, it, what we do see is that when they're not getting enough milk, they're worrying the ewe a lot. Yeah. Um, and we both see that those ewes are more likely to go on to get mastitis. And we know that a lot of mastitis is from ewes that have already got one of these or more abscesses. So we think that there's something around the damage to that. But when we think of the um, first-time lammers, where it, it's less likely they've got an abscess, we also see that nutrition has a huge role to play. Um, we do see that those ewes are more likely to get teat lesions. So presumably the teats are maybe a little bit less tough because they've not fed lambs before. If we're seeing lesions around the teat, bacteria could be getting in that, that way too. So I think it could both be an outside damage and, a, and an internal damage that we're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. Post a lamb drinking, how quickly does the other sort of other teat close up to prevent bacteria getting in? I, so I don't think we know that for sheep, but for cows, we know it's around 20 to 30 minutes. Okay, it's quite a long time. So it's if a lamb is hungry and feeding more, it's more often the udder is being opened as well. Absolutely. Yeah, no, there's, um, I think about a lot of it comes back to that, just having nutrition optimal, and that's going to have a big impact on, on, on the whole production cycle as well as, as, well as the status. It, it will, absolutely will. No, absolutely. There's some really interesting research on order morphology, so sort of the, the drop of the udder, teat placements, teat angles. A lot of this would have been done in dairy, but I know you've, you've been involved in some work in what they call meat sheep. Yes, we have. I mean, I guess the good news is for, for most um, commercial ewes that their udders are fine. Um, but we, we did find some interesting variation, and, and which was linked to um, risk of mastitis and risk of teat lesions. So mm -hmm. um, if, you, if you think about, if you look at a sheep from behind and you think about the fact you've got the, the, the udder in two halves, the ideal teat placement is, um, if we think of a clock face, that the teats mm -hmm. are pointing at around four o'clock and eight o'clock on a clock face. Um, so they're pointing out slightly, 
front to back, they are about halfway along. So we did find a, a farmer who had particularly bred for teats to face forwards. I think the argument being that then the lambs could access the teats better than if they were facing out um, exactly sideways. But in fact, that seemed to increase the risk of mastitis. So um, yeah. teats at that stage, we found that very, very fat teats or very long teats um, were also a risk. Um, that could be a little bit cause and effect. But, you know, sometimes you get these really fat teats. Um, so I, I tend to say those ewes are ones you need to, to watch for mastitis. Um, and once the udders became droopy, um, that they were more likely to get mastitis. Uh, and age is another factor. So we do see that um, once ewes are six years old or so, that they really need particular support with supplementary feed but they are producing less milk and they do seem to be at greater risk of mastitis. So a, a planned culling programme, thinking around age as part of that, is is a good thing to do if you're aiming to prevent these problems. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and some of these other morphology traits come back to management issues as well. They've got, uh, you know, issues with big teats that a lamb can't suckle or you need, you need assistance suckling. Yeah. Um, so a big part of that in terms of the risk of mistakes, would that be because the lambs are struggling to gain access and they're more sort of putting more pressure on the udder? Yes, I think so. I mean, I, I think the the natural position, I guess, as the lamb attaches to the teat, then in, inside the gland, what we have is uh, there's a pool of milk at the bottom mm -hmm. and then we've got the tissue making the milk that's feeding into that pool. And when the lamb feeds, they're basically sucking up the pool that's already been put into the bottom so if if the teat is not in quite the right position and the lamb therefore when they attach they're less able to suck um, into the pool effectively then they will stay on for longer they'll feed for longer um, and it may well be that maybe the pool doesn't drain out so you then have milk sitting in in that sort of cistern at the bottom for longer than you want and of course the milk needs to drain away so we don't have old milk sitting in the gland either yeah, yeah, no, it's really interesting. Well, um, we're going to speak to Poppy Freighter a bit later on um, about how we can kind of implement that in a breeding program and you know yeah. what, what things to think about. Yeah. Um, we've got a couple, a couple of last questions. Given that we know how many bacteria are involved, is it realistic to expect a vaccine for it? I think that's a that's a really interesting question. The people have repeatedly made staphylococcal vaccines. Mm -hmm. In in themselves, they're never that effective. Some some people have had some benefit from them, um, but I think, to be honest, we're a long way from a, a cure-all vaccine. Mm -hmm. um, and if we vaccinate against Staphylococci, remember there are all the other bacteria. So you may get a marginal benefit, but you're nev we're never going to not have mastitis, I think. I think that's inevitable, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Are, are any of these vaccines commercial in other countries or in, or in cattle? Yes, yeah, so there's a staph vaccine. Yeah. Um, in sheep that's certainly licensed in Spain. I'm not sure if it's in the UK at the moment yet. The slight difference, I think, is that, that many of the farmers in Spain, of course, will be producing milk, uh, and therefore they're looking at the udder of their sheep every day um, or twice a day. I think it, I think because of that difference in the system of management, that the, the benefit of a staph vaccine may be more obvious than us when really, um, you know, we may look at our sheep every day, but we don't really know what's going on with the udder, um, we don't handle that every day. Yeah, no, I think there's a, there's a big part of that. What about ORF leading to teat lesions? Yeah. It can, be, can become fairly nasty. Is that going to impact mastitis? 
Yes, it will do um, because of it's it's be damaging the teat. And again, I think it'll do two things. One is physical damage may mean bacteria more likely to get in. But I think the other is, of course, that the ewe will then kick the lamb away because it's painful yeah. and the lamb will not be able to feed. We get that irregularity in, in milk feeding. And again, I think that that can be a risk. Um, so I think the, you know, the, the thing with ORF, I, I just, there is just a hesitation. There is a really nasty staphylococcal skin infection, mm-hmm. which um, lambs can get around their mouths that I would say is indistinguishable for ORF. So it's really important to get a diagnosis. So if you've got a flock, you've never had ORF before and you start to see these and they are really nasty, crusty lesions. You know, they will stop the lambs feeding and they'll look uh-huh. really miserable. Get a diagnosis. Don't assume that you've got off and start using the vaccine because the vaccine is live. So you will absolutely be introducing off to your flock when you vaccinate. Um, so make sure you've got it before you start vaccinating. But then do use the vaccine. It's very effective. Very much the best time to use it is to vaccinate the ewes before lambing. Um, vaccinate on the back leg so there's minimal chance it's going to get anywhere near the the um, mouth or the um, udder of the ewe mm-hmm. um, get get her immune before the lambs are born um, and and manage it that way i'd just like to say a big thank you to laura for joining us today thank you laura thank you very much indeed great thank you hello puppy thanks for speaking to me today hello how are you doing hello. good how's yourself i am well thank you yeah very good puppy what impact does mastitis have on individual and flock productivity? Yeah, so... Why is it such an issue? Why is it such an issue? So for starters, um, it's estimated about 4 to 6% of ewes are culled due to other problems. So mastitis and other problems generally are adding to the replacement costs of ewes. So that's quite a high uh, proportion. Um, but also, like, you'll have, in some cases, up to 50% of infections may even go undiagnosed, so it's subclinical and it's really hard to detect. So this impacts the used milk production and therefore will affect uh, lamb growth rates. Some farms have even linked their lightest lambs at eight weeks to mastitis. So it could be having a big problem, big effect, without actually being acknowledged in the flock. And then on top of that, of course, when you have to treat mastitis cases, that's labour, that's veterinary costs, and then sometimes you might have to um, provide colostrum to the lambs or even remove one or all of the lambs yep. from the use. So there's a cost associated with the treatment and uh, management associated with it. Absolutely. And often fairly unsuccessful treatment as well. So it's a yeah, you know, exactly. tough, one, tough one to get on top of. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, going back to that kind of four or six percent cold, that's increasing your replacement rate. Yeah. Um, so you've either got more. So you're buying in more or you've got less ewe lambs to sell as well. If you've got a generally high placement exactly. rate in the flock. Yeah. You know, if we start, I suppose we'll just go through it kind of in a timeline. So if we start running up uh, up to and during lambing, um, we know mastitis is caused by this bacteria that's in the environment um, that gets into into the teat. But what should we be considering then for indoor lambing systems to reduce the exposure or the chances of getting mastitis? Yeah, so the bacteria can be everywhere it's a lot of the common sort of bacteria that we deal with um you know for problems for other sorts of infections so it primarily comes down to hygiene making sure that the bedding's kept clean and dry and replaced frequently disinfectant is used as much as possible and do not overstock the pens 
and also just being high encouraging the staff to be hygienic you know having things like antibacterial um hand gel um being aware of the the clothing of the staff um because these are all vectors of that transmit the bacteria from you to you it's a very infectious Absolutely. condition so it's really easily spread yeah yeah no i think the hygiene of the staff is a really a really good point also in terms of like that stocking rate we've also got the the feed barriers as well so the dis you know the feed the space allocation per u yeah and um, so that'd be 45 centimeters a u is there a kind of decent size cross u yeah and that's beneficial for lots of reasons but yeah making sure they've got plenty of space at the feed and then a lot of people don't realize um a lot of pens are often quite overstocked you know we're actually supposed yes. to give 1.2 meter squared per u and that's beneficial to the the well-being that reduces the stress levels of the use which is beneficial to lambing generally so yeah, yeah. making sure they've got plenty of space absolutely yeah and we spoke to laura green earlier and really what I kind of took from it really was that probably one of the biggest factors, the biggest things that we can do that's in our control is the nutrition of the ewe um, and managing body condition. So we're sort of optimizing ewe milking ability. You've not got hungry lambs that are feeding more often, opening up the teat. And also, you know, hungry lambs are pushing against the other, they're causing you know, damage to the other. What sort of things should we be thinking about then pre-lambing to optimize the nutrition? Yeah, I mean, exactly. It's not the most exciting messages. It's the stuff we talk about all the time, keeping on top of condition. Um, you know, they should be in condition score three at lambing time for lowland flocks anyways. Um, so, you know, it's any time they're brought in, you know, it's scanning time, just making sure, just getting your hand across the backs and condition scoring them and managing them accordingly to make sure those lean ones um, are brought up to target in time for lambing time as those lean ones will be the highest risk for mastitis with the nutritional pressure on them. And if you think, you know, with all the pressure in those last six weeks of pregnancy, um, all that nutritional strain on the ewe, their immune system is going to be compromised. So condition score um, and getting them on target and then also making sure that their nutrition is managed well in this last six weeks. So for those that are on silage-based rations, get that silage analysed and make sure any supplementary feed is of good quality to uh, balance out the deficiencies potentially in the, in the silage, if there are any. Yep, absolutely. Um, so some flocks will be concerned that maybe they're, they're a smaller size. You're trying to group and use into thin use as well as maybe not you know, handy if you've got a certain number of space or area. Um, so what options do we have there? Um, I would always say it's scanning time. So those that are too lean should be managed alongside the group with a, a greater litter size. So for instance, the twin lean twins with the with the triplets. So therefore they're getting that bit more feed. And it makes yeah, it absolutely. It, would there be a point with if you've got lean singles and you've upgraded them for a short period into the twins to try and put condition on, when should you pull them back out again? Yeah, because they'll be at risk of oversized lambs, won't they? Yeah. So again, going through them six weeks, that last six weeks is when the fetal uh, growth is really um, increasing. So making sure that they're back on a singles ration during the last six weeks. This is indoor lamb. We're talking what about outdoor lambing? There must be different factors involved. We're thinking about the wind, the rain, the cold. Yeah, so outdoors, less of a risk. Um, and, you know, there is sort of anecdotal reports that exposure to wind and the rain can aggravate the others and make them more prone to infection. Um, there isn't much research on that side, but um, 
and you know investing in good shelter to yeah. reduce that exposure is always a good thing it's a good thing for other reasons you know just making sure um at lambing time um that there's sufficient grass there's sufficient feed in front of them that's the main risk yeah no for sure i mean putting animals with higher multiple bearing lambs in the better parks as well yeah. improve survival but also give them better access for for the um for the shelter yeah. We spoke a little while back about shearing and there were some thoughts on that. Yeah, it's interesting. So some farmers uh, will shear pre-lambing time. Again, when pre-lambing? So it would, no, they wouldn't be in the last sort of six weeks. So it would be, yeah, maybe in the last sort of sort of eight weeks prior to lambing time. So it's not yeah. too close to lambing time. And there are concerns that that might lead to the udders a little bit more exposed. Um, so there's that potential risk but also um there's some reports that if the ewes are shown they're more likely to seek shelter which is good for which would be beneficial for lamb survival too yeah um so it's a bit of a, a gray area with regards to whether that's good or bad for mastitis yeah it's an interesting one isn't it yeah yeah it's another thing as well that shorn ewes but it's more of a house situation but we would they would have a higher intake as well that's right yeah they eat better meat nutrition if they can consume more yeah exactly they that exactly that they're more likely to get their protein and energy quicker yeah yeah no it's an interesting one isn't it mm -hmm. moving on to lactation then so they've either been lambed indoors and they've been out or they've lambed outside assuming you know they're out on grass now we're not looking to feed concentrates but we're also trying to maximize nutrition what factors should we consider and you know what what grass type do we need before we maybe stop uh, supplementation um, so in early lactation, um, I take it is what you mean, rather than yes. at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. So if you think when grass supply is low, um, that affects milk yields. So those lambs will be hungry and they'll be putting more pressure on the udders and potentially creating lesions, which might lead to mastitis. So when the grass is less than four centimetres, um, they should be fed with a good concentrate or sugar beet pulp and decillus grains or barley to make sure that the ewes get that bit additional feed so she can milk well. So four centimetres yep. is that target. Very roughly, say we've got kind of three and a half centimetres, what sort of amount of concentrates would you recommend? So around sort of three and a half, I would say about for a twin bearing ewe, so about 0.4 yeah. of a kilo of concentrates and then if there's less than that i would increase to up to 0.7 of a kilo per you there's also kind of going forward more and more people breeding new hogs um and to a less extent looking at rearing the triplets on the you yeah that's going to put a lot more pressure on them you know particularly some people are even keeping twins on the hogs you know there's a lot of pressure on the udder there to produce milk what options do we have there to optimize performance and reduce the mastitis risk Again, it just comes to making sure they've got absolutely prime nutrition. Um, yep. That's what it comes back down to. So if rearing hog lambs or triplets, they need to get that bit more than the average twin ewe. Um, and we've seen it work really well. We know some good farmers that use uh, multi-species swords, herbal lays, um, and they seem to do really well. But also creek feeding can be really valuable yep. at this time just to reduce that pressure on them. Absolutely, and that's that's multi-species swords without without a large amount of supplementation either. It's um yeah, really rocket fuel feed, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I suppose it comes back to that group as well. They're under higher pressure, but in general, how can we use the weaning date 
or, or the age of the lambs to mitigate you know performance and also mastitis risk we always say optimum weaning age it's around sort of 13 to 14 weeks you know generally but it should be a medium feast according to what you're observing um and you know with you lambs you've got the pressure of getting them uh, to their target weight by tapping time so therefore weaning earlier to make sure that these ewes that have higher nutritional demand have that bit more um time dry um so weaning earlier is an opportunity um in certain years when they're lean or when they've got higher demand it's an opportunity um so to wean even as early as eight weeks providing you've got good quality forage to put them onto yeah and i think particularly with with you hogs you probably should be looking at sort of 10 weeks shouldn't you as opposed to maybe 13 even weeks if you're for other, yeah. other groups it's time to grow isn't it it's not just condition it's also for them to grow on to sort of shielding target weights and yeah nope just trying to be trying to be flexible in your management rather than uh rigid to a to a date that you always do playing it with the seasons you know is the grass is it good quality you know if it's getting lost it's time to wean and you know find the best of the lambs what about protocol for weaning how best you know should we do that take the ewes out take the lambs out the field yeah so it's all about minimizing stress and the you know, some farmers don't experience much of a weaning check and it's because what they do is they might leave the lambs in the field and move the ewes um, out of sight a bit further away um, and avoid any additional stress uh, to the lambs. So making sure you don't do try and couple it weaning with things like vaccination or any other treatments, just about reducing stress and making sure that the grass in front of them is as good a quality as possible. Um, you wouldn't want to sort of introduce novel feeds right after weaning. If there's novelty, it's always better um, introduce pre-weaning. So things like, like we mentioned, herbal lays and things like that. Just making sure that things are kept as consistent as possible for the lambs themselves. Yeah, no, absolutely. And in terms of the ewe, how important is that drying off period? You know, some people will punt the ewes up to the hill for a week or two to try and dry them off. Um, I mean, particularly for those that are weaning that bit earlier as well, um, so they might be more, um, they might still be quite milky, that drying yeah. off period is often like the second risk period after peak lactation for mastitis, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it is important to make sure that it's done right. Um, so yeah, like you say, moving them up to an area of less grass for um, around two weeks to make sure they dry off effectively. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I was going to ask the question later on, but I suppose it comes back to that. A lot of people will maybe make their decisions of culling ewes at weaning time, but there's that additional risk afterwards that they might catch mastitis post-weaning. Yeah. I just wonder if if you've got any thoughts about sort of when you should be checking bags, basically. And You know, on that note, wait until two weeks after, wait until after the drying off period and then going through them. And looking yeah. for lumps and lesions um, would probably be better than right at weaning. No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we spoke to Laura Green about, you know, the lesions and the other being a sign of chronic mastitis, you know, these lesions containing, containing the bacteria and being a risk factor for future sort of more acute mastitis. But I just sort of wonder at what point should we be calling use? Yeah, she's still milking the two halves, but at what point should we be calling them for damage to the udder or, or lesions or lumps or damage and things like that you don't want your replacement rate going through the roof and having a very expensive flock if that's the case um yeah it kind of works both ways doesn't it yeah yeah that's it and so i often think like a phased sort of culling so 
And you know, you see some farmers actually uh, scoring the the quality of the udders, so from yeah. uh, very good to very poor. And you might say, well, those that are really poor, they're the ones due to cull. Those that are, you know, not great but can deal with, I might keep them that bit longer. And just by having this sort of protocol, you're improving yeah. the quality of the udders year on year without causing too much cost or you might just say right I'm going to take a hard hit this year I mean you know cull use might be seem to be pretty trading pretty well anyway so maybe you yeah. take a hit to the flock this year and then um, just make sure that it's embedded in your sort of protocol and selection later on to make sure you don't end up building up problems in the future so lesions and lumps like Laura mentioned it's it's a risk factor um, and I do think because these can spread infection to other others in the flock, you know, if they've got underlying uh, infection, they can still spread that even though they're still functional. Um, so yeah, you want to start removing them from the flock. No, it's a bit of balance again with that risk and replacement rate and cost. And yeah, and there's a lot of things to think about. You mentioned sort of scoring others. Yeah. Is that at weaning or is it at, at lambing time? Both, I would say. These lesions as well, like they'll change. They burst, they change, they move, don't they? So you want to yeah. get a feel on them at different points of the year. Um, and they'll That's have nice. a lot of pressure at lambing time. So if, if nothing else, at those two times, lambing and two yeah. weeks post-weaning would be good. Definitely. I suppose there's the other factor. There's those sort of lesions and things that can they can come and go or develop. We've also got sort of other morphology traits as well. Yeah. So they think about them a lot more in, in sort of dairy sector things. But, you know, you've got things like, you know, we all know that you can get really droopy udders that are nearly touching the ground, but then you can get ones that are far up. And we've got, you know, different teat angles, teat sizes and things. And they all, you know, we, and we do know they've got a genetic factor as well. So we can yeah. use them. Um, yeah. And aside from mastitis, just think of all the lambs that you haven't handled to get them to suck yeah. on. And all that. So you're always trying, you know, having those ideal teat placements at, this, at the ideal angle for the lambs to get to um, that don't hang too low. Um, just considering all those things to make sure that that lamb can stand up and suckle without needing any help is ideal. Definitely. We can say that I don't, you know, that you has a poor order morphology or, or lesions. I'm not going to use her the following year. But what options do we have there to actually identify her later on? and also to identify her daughter, good or yeah. bad, for keeping or for removing out the flock. Yeah, so there's more simple methods, so like recording tag numbers or, or notching tags. I've seen some farmers actually use say, flag tags and actually notch mm -hmm. the tag instead of notching ears. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So doing things like that is just quite nice and simple way to uh, recognise the ones you don't want to keep. Uh, of course, less. Yeah less work um, and then those ones they might be it might be a system either um, you want to cull them or they might not be too severe they might think we'll keep them but I don't want to keep her daughters so therefore um, you might want to put either a different colored tag or or whatever to make sure that she doesn't get put to a, a maternal ram she's put to a terminal ram I've seen people use different colored tags so yeah like a certain color won't be kept and then others will use electronic identification, EID, and that provides opportunity to collect data specific to the animal. So you only ensure that you keep and breed from those of the traits that you want that your future flock to have. And that gives you a lot more control. Having a system in place so you can actually identify these animals later. 
Exactly. Um, Just uh, something that works for the farm, that works for the staff, and it can be simple, or you can go down the line of more technology because. You know, there's only so many notches you can do. So using electronic identification provides you, you can collect so much more data there. No, plenty, plenty of options. Um, I think that's maybe our final question for the day. So um, just like to say a big thank you to you, Poppy, for joining us today. It's uh, been really interesting. <laughs> thank you very much. It's been good to talk thank with you. you.